Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. Today, our guest is Bill Strogis. Bill is the CRO of one of the most disruptive software companies in the industry, Hyperscience. The potential is staggering. The mission is simple. Build the most feared sales team in the industry. How will he do it? This is his playbook. In this special edition series, The 33 CXOs, we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man, John McMahon, a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at Blade Logic, which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome the CRO from Hyperscience, one of the hottest startups around, Bill Strogis. Bill, welcome. Thank you guys, appreciate it. Welcome to the show, Bill. So, Bill, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Hyperscience, your mission, and a little bit about your role there. All right, so, um, so Hyperscience is, we're about seven years old. We're on a pretty ambitious mission, if you, if you Look at our, our published uh, mission statements, essentially, that we want to be uh, the automation company. We've got a focus right now that's predominantly around document processing, uh, but we solved the very hardest problem first. Uh, it's one that, that has been in the works for decades. People have been trying to solve this problem, just haven't done a very good job. So we've got some brilliant uh, machine learning experts that have basically found a, a key to a puzzle that uh, has been stumping people for a long time, and we're now very highly regarded as being the best data extraction company in the world, uh, especially dealing with handwriting. If you've got a, a document that has handwriting, um, our ability to extract that accurately is unprecedented. There's, there's not even a close second. And the very novel approach we took to solving that problem is actually giving us an opportunity to solve other areas of document processing in particular. If you look at things like classification, uh, validating the data, Essentially, if you just think about how data enters into these large organizations and how it has to be normalized and made accurate and usable by all these uh, applications that run the business, we're in a position to uh, to automate much, if not all, of that process in ways that uh, that other companies simply haven't been able to do. And it's again all because of this very novel approach using uh, using AI and the most sophisticated ML that's out there. So, it's our mission to become the automation company. And obviously, you have been appointed as the sales, the global sales leader there. You know, what's your kind of mission there? What's your ambition for where this thing can go? So I've been with the company since July of last year. So this being August, uh, you know, 13 months. I had worked previously with our CRO, uh, Charlie. Charles and worked French. Uh, he and I worked together a couple of companies ago. And... Um, 
he had been at HyperScience for a few months when he realized that uh, this was an excellent product. It was a market that was completely prepared for disruption. It needed the disruption, but they didn't really have much of a sales motion. They had the sales team was a, a couple of guys based in uh, Manhattan um, selling to companies literally all over the world from that one office. And uh, and what Charlie knew was that he needed somebody that had. Um, had a reputation for building teams from scratch, from putting best practices in place, for knowing how to implement sales processes um, in, in a way that, that applied the appropriate amount of rigor and discipline, but without it being very heavy handed. Uh, the company culture here is, is one that they, they take a lot of pride in. This is not a uh, heavy handed sort of sales culture here. Um, I'm hiring people with grit and determination and all those things, but it's it's uh, unlike some other places I've worked, which I'm, I'm sure we'll probably touch upon given the <laughs> topics. And so Charlie knew that that's really something that I had uh, demonstrated some some aptitude for, and it's really where I'd focused uh, probably the last 10 to 12 years of my career. And so my mission, to be honest, is to, to build yeah, it's funny. I, I'm going to hear myself say this, and I've and I've heard it said to me from some of the best sales <laughs> leaders I've ever worked for. But it's it, it's it's the truth, and it and I think it's, it gets to the heart of what John created um, quite some time ago, which is this notion that you know the best sales team will outperform the second or third best sales team, even if that second or third best sales team has uh, a superior product. Good news is at HyperScience for the areas that we're focused on, we actually also have the best product. So my mission is to not build a fiefdom. I don't, I don't want to have, you know, a thousand sellers. I'm not trying to build the biggest company possible. I'm trying to build a successful company. I'm trying to build um, a go-to-market team that will scale smartly. Uh, we'll get the channel up and running. We'll do all the right things. And, uh, and then I want to, I want this to be my exit. I want this to be my swan song. I want this to be, uh, the, sort of my lasting legacy before I go do other things for a living. So uh, I'm trying to build it the right way. I'm trying to trying to um, not uh, not mess too much with the uh, with the company culture. Right? It's pretty easy to, <laughs> to, to build a bit of a locker room type of environment, as is often the case. And um, and so I'm trying to be sensitive to that. But I mean, my mission is literally to be uh, the most feared sales team in this industry. And the good news is. As I'm getting to understand our competition, the bar set pretty low. <laughs> it really is. I, I, I'm, I'm accustomed to some industries where you know there's some legitimate competition, and some of the competition has some pretty good sellers. Um, this is an old industry, and the sellers are. I mean, we're. I almost feel bad. I think we catch them napping more often than not. So uh, building building the most feared sales team in this particular industry isn't going to be that hard, but uh, just building a, a repeatable set of processes and get some sellers in here that can go make a ton of money and uh, and do that repeatedly year after year, that, that that's really what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, great. Well, just kind of reflecting on this story that we're telling, Bill, we, we approached yep. you... Um, as part of the 33 CROs, um, you know, those guys have gone on, well, you guys have gone on to create remarkable success, um, having learned the playbook from John McMahon, um, your, kind of the legacy stretching back to PTC. But what's interesting about your background is that you kind of, the first part of your career was actually fighting against that to the point where there was perhaps even some resentment of, of of the world that you're now so indoctrinated in so it'd be really good for, for you to kind of give us a bit of an insight into the beginnings of, of, of your journey yeah and this is interesting because there's probably peers of mine out there that are going to hear this and they're going to go i thought he worked for ptc because that, that's <laughs> that's how this whole that's how this circle of life 
uh, I think for me at least, uh, kind of work. So, so I was a mechanical engineer at a company called Stratus Computer, and this was in the late 80s uh, until about like 94, I think, was when uh, I made the switch to actually sell the software. But it's, it's how that came about that uh, involves PTC. So uh, at Stratus, I was actually the mechanical engineering lead that was responsible for evaluating CAD CAM tools. And we had narrowed the search to two companies, Matra Data Vision and PTC. And PTC was a very hot company at the time, although at that, at that stage, I think the company was still a bit in its infancy, which participated in, in, in some of what we're about to talk to. Um, <laughs> but what was really interesting to me as, as an evaluator of software and somebody that was responsible for um, understanding our buying process more so than understanding the sales process. I didn't, I didn't give a shit about a sales process, right? Um, what I saw were a bunch of guys that I kind of thought were, you know, well, I mean, to be honest, you know, they, I didn't, I didn't think they were super high IQ. They didn't know what I did for a living. They were just, they were salespeople. It was my first real engagement with, with, with salespeople. And, um, and so as we went further and further through the evaluations and we basically were doing was what amounted to a, a bit of a bake-off between those two companies. As I was spending more and more time with the SEs from both companies and the salespeople from most, uh, both companies. And because both Matra, the U.S., uh, headquarters, U.S. headquarters for Matra was actually in the Boston area, and PTC, of course, was headquartered there. Uh, the VPs of sales, the corporate VPs of sales, were also keenly interested in what was going on at Stratus because, you know, I guess they're lazy. They can get in the car and come visit me. So I was starting to get to know all the players on both sides to a pretty significant degree, and both of them, I think, came to recognize that perhaps I, I could bring something to the table. And so as an aside, now mind you, I now realize this was just like, you know, sales shenanigans. They may or may not have truly wanted to hire me at PTC. It doesn't really matter. But both of them kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, listen, you know, if we were to win this deal, we, we think that perhaps you might be somebody that once we've had a successful implementation, we got really smart on our products, we might be interested in hiring you. And as would typically be the case, you know, the sales guys were, were good enough to know how to take me out to lunch and, uh, and, and try to turn me into their champion. And I came to learn how much these guys are making. And that was my that was my pivotal that was my come to Jesus moment. I'm like, I remember coming home and telling my wife, I'm like, sorry, I'm having lunch with these halfwits that make three times the money I'm making. Like something's got to go. <laughs> so that's when I decided this might you know the dark side might not be a bad thing for me. Uh -huh. um, now, again, because I think the, the PTC product at that time was, uh, it just wasn't as mature for, for all the right reasons for Stratus, we ended up electing to go with Matra Data Vision. I ended up becoming very proficient on the product because I helped the implementation. And so my first sales job was actually with Matra Data Vision, and they hired me as a solutions engineer, an SE or sales engineer, whatever the term was at the time. That quickly didn't last long because eventually the VP of sales saw that I was able to basically do the SE's job and the sales uh, rep's job. Uh, most of the sales reps that came with me would, would kind of sit in the corner and let me just do my thing. And so uh, I, I ended up doing a dual role. So the interesting part about that was uh, a couple of things. One is um, I, I was a mechanical engineer. I had credibility. So selling CAD CAM tools to mechanical engineers was, was easy for me. I, I, I knew how to speak their language. Second advantage that I had over the PTC guys, at least most of them, the, certainly the ones that were, were selling the, the product at that time, I understood what buyers were going through. I was, uh, I was very much attuned to what the buying journey looked like and where the buyers were in their process. And what I've come to learn subsequently at PTC especially is they were so maniacally focused on having a repeatable, predictable process, right? Which again, now the irony is that I, I fully subscribe to the value of that. But as a new seller, what I knew was 
if I went into a prospect and I said, by the way, I don't know if you're talking to PTC or not, but you will for sure because they're going to be all over you. And when you do, here's what they're going to do. Here's what they're going to say. Here's what they're going to tell you. Here's what they're going to tell you that you have to do this. And so my, my knowledge and ability to relate to what they were going through from a buying journey and my ability to tell them prescriptively, here's exactly what PTC is going to say and get them prepared for how that's not good for them as buyers actually allowed me to have really good success. I mean, really great success selling right in PTC's backyard. But then to, to take the, the, the story sort of full circle, you fast forward a bunch of years later, you get the Blade Logic and BMC, and I'm now surrounded by a bunch of people that work for PTC. And I would tell some of these stories and we would talk about, you know, they would talk about the PTC days. I was so familiar with what they were doing and how they were doing it. And I was even starting to get familiar with all the people because I was bumping into all the same folks. It just became natural. Everybody assumed I worked for PTC. I knew so much about what they did and how they did it. They were like, oh, yeah, remember you were at PTC? I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like, I just, at some point, you just stop saying, no, actually, I was trying to kill you guys for a living. That was my job. Um, and so, anyway, so that, that's the irony is that now I can look back and I, I not only can appreciate and understand the real value of what they were doing because, you know, what PTC crafted, like the, that, the whole notion of a repeatable sales process and, and, and applying some real uh, rigor around that and measuring the things that you should measure, all of that uh, is, is the reason why you guys are even having these, these uh, conversations with, with these folks. I mean, it, it's, it, it was enormously valuable and, and uh, I wouldn't trade the experience for the world, but it, it is kind of funny. Most of the PTC guys, they're kind of like, I don't remember them like, actually in the company, but I'm pretty sure he worked there. Like, yeah, I, I never actually did, so. It's interesting because you were actually not hired by Blade Logic. You were actually hired by BMC and then barely through the door, Blade Logic were acquired? Yeah, so I actually, I got, so I, again, it's an interesting story, timing being everything in life, uh, because this also benefited me a bit. Uh, when you start to talk about the when the blade guys took over all the good roles at BMC, um, I was actually hired by the Legacy Blade team. So Scott Davis hired me. I worked for Terry okay. Powers. We were all reporting right up prior to so it was post acquisition, but it was before there was any attempts at assimilating the two teams or or, or blending them. So. So I worked for some time, it was less than a calendar year, uh, slightly less than a calendar year. I worked for all of the Blade Logic guys selling only Blade Logic in a world that looked and smelled and tasted like the Blade Logic okay. world. Um, officially, I never had a Blade Logic badge. I, I was always a BMC employee, but there was a pretty extensive period of time where my peers and everybody I was working with and everything I was doing was, was pure Blade Logic. And just did, I didn't have the benefit of having uh, uh, been part of the acquisition. So does that mean that you joined as a sales specialist? Because fundamentally, when Blade Logic yes. took over by BMC, they built a sales yep. specialist team, didn't they? Correct. Yeah. Um, it was really, it was actually slightly before that, I think, was made official. Um, but I think, I'm sure that was my title. But like I said, there was a period of time where if you looked at, at how I sold, what I sold, who I worked for, everything, it, um, because it wasn't like they bought Blade Logic and everybody, you know, moved to Houston, right? So mm. it, you know, it felt like very separate mm. companies. There was just suddenly this new, uh, new adult 
in the room that that might be paying attention to what we were doing. But if you if you look at all the guys that hired me, everybody interviewed with uh, how how I was selling all of that, it was it was Blade. I didn't have the benefit of being there for years, like a lot of folks that I still consider my peers and, and part of my network today. A lot of them worked for Blade for years before the acquisition. I wasn't there for years, but I did work directly with the Blade guys before there was any attempt at, uh, at blending the teams. So. How was that for you then? Because obviously these have been an arch kind of rivals, enemies to some degree. Um, probably, uh, probably a better word, but... No, look, I, I think, look, I, I again, I, you guys probably know the story fairly well, but, um, you know, Blade Logic had just had a sales motion and sales leaders and a, and a discipline around them that it's... It's been duplicated fairly well since, but that was really where a lot of this stuff was birthed. Like that was the first company that that most people can point to and say, what Blade, the, what Blade Logic figured out, like how to go about doing this and how to be successful and how to how to create great sellers and how to create great sales leaders. Um, quite frankly, BMC couldn't compete with that. Now I don't even know if BMC would have made an attempt to to, to even compete with that at the time. I think they were the eighth largest software company in the world. I mean, that's a, that's a big mass to try to move, right? Blade was still agile enough that, that they could do these things. And, but the interesting thing started to be, as I'm sure you're very well aware, um, slowly but surely, especially when John took over sales at BMC, the Blade guys were getting the good jobs, right? So when you have these two teams and rather than a specialist sales organization, they're now trying to be one sales organization where everybody essentially sells everything. Not entirely true because the mainframe side of BMC's business remains separate, but you're going to naturally start to have some clashes. And I think because, you know, again, if you go back to that time period, the sort of eat or be eaten mentality was, that's how we got, that's how, how we were sort of birthed into this. Like, that's what we were accustomed to. And I don't think the BMC guys were so much. And so, so when it was, you know, the Mad Max and the, the, uh, the Thunderdome or whatever, two men enter, one man leave kind of thing like that. That's essentially what was happening for a lot of these leadership roles. And um, I think the Blade guys were just better prepared for that fight. I think they were just, you know, street toughened. And um, and so, so, so here's the, so the interesting part for me, I, I once again somehow managed to be uh, special in this world of, of all of this stuff. Because I never was officially, I never wore a Blade Logic shirt, let's put it that way, or had a Blade Logic business card. I, I was, <laughs> so I was, I was positively benefiting from this groundswell of Blade guys taking all the good jobs. By the time the Southeast, and I was working at this point, I had moved to Atlanta. So um, by the time the Southeast team was looking for additional leadership, the pendulum started to swing the other direction. I think Bob Beecham woke up one day and said, holy cow, I'm like all of my sales leaders have, have either, you know, they basically by pushed out of most of the good positions and the blade guys were taken over. I'm generalizing, of course, it, it may not have been that that pervasive, but it certainly felt like it to me. They kind of put the pump to the brakes and and uh, there was this, this pushback that's essentially like, you know, we can't be promoting any more blade guys. Like this is getting a little bit ridiculous. And I was in line to uh, actually be promoted to, to run a portion of the Southeast. And so that was all in the works. And, and thank God for me at the time, I was preparing to, to work for Andy Shorkey, who uh, is still a friend of mine today. He's a terrific sales leader, but he's legacy uh, BMC at this point. So Andy and I got along really, really well, but now all of this whole, we can't promote Blade guys thing was starting to get in the way. 
So the nuance that I never actually worked for Blade pre-acquisition allowed me to raise my hand and go, I'm a BMC guy. Like I'm not even a Blade guy. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so I, so I ended up, so I ended up getting the job anyways. And that was that I had had sales leadership roles before, but they were for companies where that doesn't mean the same thing that it means to us here. So the fact that I had held titles and I had managed people before didn't really prepare me for what I ended up learning at BMC and, and again, still surrounded by all the blade guys. And then there was this other wave of legacy PPC folks that never worked for blade that were being brought in as well. And people that are good friends of mine to this day, like Mark DeFacus, like, you know, tank was, was a peer of mine uh, running portion of the Southeast. Uh, Kelly Connery was ex PPC. One of the best sales leaders I've ever had the pleasure of working with her for uh, was brought in to, to, to run a, a much of North America. So um, that was really, I think that version of BMC was where all of this stuff came together. It also proved that what worked exceptionally well, at BMC, I'm sorry, at PTC, that was refined for Blade and that sort of small go kick everybody's ass type of vibe that Blade had that actually still worked even with a, you know, the eighth largest software company in the world. We were, we were just doing great. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. It's, it's helped me uh, tremendously. And so fast forwarding a little bit here, obviously a phenomenal career at BMC. And was it Adam Aaron that hired you at Okta? Yeah, so so when, it, when the BMC thing started to run its course, um, and, and most of the the a lot of the legacy blade guys, I think, had said, "Okay, we've we've done enough of the BMC thing. Let's go parlay this into something else." Um, and it was time for me to start giving some consideration of what I wanted to do next. Adam had just taken uh, over sales at Okta, and Okta was in its infancy at that point. I I was I believe I was the first employee on the East Coast certainly the first employee of Octa's on the, in the um, Southeast. And I was the 116th employee at Octa maybe. And Adam had obviously been there for some period of time. So yeah, look, so I, I had never worked directly with Adam at BMC because he was always on the, the West coast and I've, I've always been on the East coast, but I got to know him real well. And obviously we know all the same people. And so, yeah, that was, that was a natural thing for me. I, when I, when I heard Aaron, uh, Adam tell me what it was he was going to do and how he was going to do it, it just felt like Blade only, you know, I yeah. had the opportunity to be there early as I didn't have with, with Blade Logic. So, um, and that just turned out to be a, 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 a turned out to be a good choice. Yeah. Because <laughs> then there's an interesting story which then follows, which I always, it's interesting to hear because you then went to work for Fuse, who the CRO was Andy Byron. So, Correct. how does that work in the, obviously, our, I'm assuming Adam and Aaron are friends. How does it, how does it work and how does it, you know, when, when individuals go from one company to another company where there's a, a Blade Logic PTC yeah, so, team so, group in play? So it, was, it, it wasn't that tricky. It wasn't like uh, Andy had to steal me away. Right. Um, there had, at that point, there had been, Okta had gotten to a place where it was a very different sales organization. It also got to a place where um, the sales leadership surrounding Adam at Okta wasn't legacy. It was not. It was predominantly not legacy Blade and BMC. It was legacy Opsware and HP. Right. Um, and, and and that look and that that's it's easy to understand. Um, Ben Horowitz, who is from Opsware and HP, 
took a very uh, personal interest in Okta. It was one of the first SaaS companies I think Andreessen Horowitz had actually invested in. And so Ben wanted to be very closely attached to this. And so I think Adam found himself in an interesting position and he, and he handled it beautifully and, and helped Okta be as successful as it is. But I think Adam's preference would have been to bring in John and bring in all of the people that he knew and surround himself with the people that he had just spent the last five, seven years, whatever it might have been, uh, having success with. And uh, that's hard to do because, you know, Blade Logic and Opsware were two very different companies, you know, competing with, with, I think, very different sales motions. And likewise, HP and BMC, you know, HP certainly doesn't sell the way that BMC did at that time. So, so I kind of woke up one day and it wasn't like Blade Logic all over again. It was a very different thing. And, and we were having good success, but I was surrounded by people I didn't really know. I didn't recognize them. And I mean that in terms of their sales motion and what they thought was a good idea. And so it, it didn't it didn't have for me that same it didn't have the impact on me that I wanted it to. Like I wanted to continue yeah. what I had been doing and I yeah. and even though the company was having success. So interestingly, uh, it was actually Richard Rivera that called me one day out of the blue and, and I'm like, dude, I'm like, do you have any idea how much money I'm making at Okta? Like, why would I even contemplate leaving? All of the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I mean, I'll pay attention. Especially because at the time, Fuse was called Thinking Phones and, and Thinking. no offense to Steve Kokinas, who I, I admire and I like very, very much, is the worst company name ever uh, for a company that didn't really sell phones. So he calls me and says, I'm working for this, uh, you know, Byron and I, a whole bunch of other people are working for this company called Thinking Phones. I'm like, stop right there. Like I couldn't possibly imagine what the hell you're going to say next, but that just sounds awful. And he goes, well, it's this thing called unified communication. Like, I don't know what the hell that is. That just sounds terrible. So like the whole first conversation is I'm like, dude, this is, just sounds awful. And he's like, no, 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 I'm telling you, it's great. It's great. And Richard and I had gotten uh, really close at BMC. He's an uh, excellent sales leader. He's a very, very good um, enabler. He's just, he's, he's outstanding when it comes to, to um, coaching and mentoring and, and enabling sellers. And that's always been, an area of my career that I've prided myself on, on not only focusing on it, but I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it. So, so when Richard, you know, when it was Richard that called, I'm like, okay, this is interesting to me. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then as I came to better understand what they were doing, now that felt to me more like what I was kind of hoping Okta was ultimately going to be. Uh, and so I gave that a shot. And then I found myself pleasantly reunited with a whole bunch of BMC and uh, Blade Logic folks, mm -hmm. and uh, some of whom are still people that I uh, that I stay as close to as I can recently, given how busy everybody is. But you know, likes of Cedric Pesh and others. Um, it was a good experience. Yeah, really good experience. Yeah, and just going back to that Octa, you know, do you think that it's because Octa reached a certain level of maturity that the I suppose the go-to-market strategy and what you were doing had to change because you know you're no longer driving in necessarily that sort of startup high growth sort of phase yeah I, I, yeah I, there's probably i'm sure there's elements to that i mm -hmm. the the thing that led me to feel like i could leave octa and not be terribly regretful now mind you i can now look at what the stock price is and i'm, I'm not going to lie to you i could kick myself yeah. in the head. <laughs> you we wouldn't be talking because i'd be on some tropical island somewhere and i'd give right. two shits about you guys and what you do um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, no, I think it just had more to do with the the company. It, the company changed, like the sales motion changed, the sales leadership. It, like it, in hindsight, it was a really good experience for me because if you don't have the benefit of being reminded that there are other ways to sell, 
and other ways to approach sales leadership. It's easy for us to, to forget that we're surrounded by people that quite frankly, I think are just exceptional, right? So I, I, the analogy that always pops into my head is um, both of my girls grew up playing soccer and they played at a very, very high level. And my oldest, and she's about 27, living in Denver and probably hasn't thought about soccer in forever, but at, uh, at one point she had been playing, um, we call it state cup soccer here in Florida. So it's the, each of the cities or towns has the very best kids playing for their club. That's just how this works. And those clubs play each other for a state, state cup championship it is the best of the uh the soccer players play at, at this level and so my daughter comes home from her, like her first day of uh tryouts for um high school soccer and i'm like hey, you know how did it go she goes i'm not gonna play high school soccer and i'm thinking oh man i mean i know my daughter's really good i'm thinking oh they did they either mistreated her she didn't make the team god forbid i'm like this that can't be the case uh even though she was a freshman i knew she, she, she should have been able to play uh in varsity soccer and she goes dad they're just terrible like, what do you mean? She's like, they're terrible. They're just like, I can't play with them. They're terrible. And you know, we had a conversation about how she could go and be a leader on the team. And that turned out to be a good story. But um, the reason I bring that up is if you're accustomed to surrounding yourself with largely the same audience of people and your sales motion doesn't change considerably and you're drawing from the best sellers and putting them into this playbook, you can forget that there aren't that many people out there that are actually this exceptional or that sell this way. And you can forget that this isn't the way everybody sells. And so I think the Okta experience did that for me. Like when suddenly I was surrounded by sales leaders, again, other than, than Adam, Adam was doing his thing and he was doing a terrific job, but he was suddenly in between Adam and I were, were people that, that don't view selling the way that I view selling. Their, their perspective on how to manage people wasn't the same. Their approach to what happens if a deal started to get squirrely at the end of the quarter was largely, well, did you talk to them about it this time? I'm like, oh, for God's sakes, that's like the last thing you should be doing, right? So so there was just that kind of thing. And so I think I, I now in hindsight, despite the fact I could have made even more money if I had stayed at Okta, um, I think that was a good ex uh, experience for me because Okta is a very, very successful company. But I, I got to witness how selling can be done very differently. And then it reminded me that isn't the way I want to sell. That isn't the way I don't, I don't think selling should be done. So, so I, I wanted to kind of go back to blade logic because I think this is a very interesting point because, you know, you, you started in a situation where you had a belief system and then you kind of embraced the fact that you had to be part of, you know, a business like blade logic, you know, which was PTC at the core. Um, was it that thirst to be part of high performance, best of the best? Was that your perception that drove you to make that decision to go back, you know, to, to become part of that story? So I think it's part of it, right? I mean, you look, I, I, I grew up playing very competitive uh, sports at, at a high level. And then you wake up and you're an adult one day and that competition has got to come out somewhere. I think it's why a lot of sellers are, are former athletes. And so there's always that piece of it, right? I, I think I don't do well when I feel like I've accomplished something and, and there's no challenge left to be had. So I feel like I want to, like that drive is always there. I feel like I want to um, surround myself with people that are excellent, that force me to be even better, like all that kind of, you know, cliche type stuff. So I think there's that element that you want to, to spend time around people that are wired that way. Um, things get hard. This is hard what we do. Like, like selling software to enterprises, taking, you know, again, I, I joke with my team all the time. I'm like, look, you, you guys make a lot of money and you, you're not firemen, police officers, 
school teachers, nurses. You don't, you're not doing the world any good. Like you're not, you're selling software for God's sake. So when it's hard, like kind of quit your bitching. You make a lot of money, a lot more money than these people who probably deserve the money, right? So you find yourself wanting to be surrounded by people that when things get hard, don't curl up in a ball. Instead, they rub some dirt on it and they go, let's get, let's go figure this out. And you want to just be surrounded by people that have that mentality because it just, it, it fuels you. If you're surrounded by people that don't have that mentality, it kind of sucks the energy out of you. So, so I think it's a combination of wanting to be around people that view the world that way because we feed off each other's energy. And like, that's a, you know, that's a good thing, of course. Um, and then the other is you just want to be surrounded by people that recognize you can't just wing it like this. Is, it, it's too hard selling something. You can't just go get really smart people, give them a good product and go, Hey, let me know if you're having any problems. Like it just doesn't work that way. And so I think there's a fine line between discipline for discipline's sake versus applying something that's repeatable and measurable so that not only do you give people the best chance at being effective, you can measure things. You can, you can keep an eye out and you can say, look, here's where I feel like you're, you're, you're getting tripped up a little bit. And so if you don't do that, like if you've just in a, in a, in a, you know, I, I, again, I could not imagine working for a large company again, like just being lost in the shuffle and everybody's got their own little job and their own little mm -hmm. cubicle and they just do the same shit all day long. I, I, I might, I couldn't do it, but I think a big part of that is because nobody's paying attention to how people need to be coached or mentored or helped. And so I think another part of it was all of that discipline and the rigor and all the stuff that, that, you know, I perhaps was maybe first birth to PTC. That's certainly my perception, but I think was, was really refined and made super effective at Blade Logic. That's the best way to get the most out of people and to know how, where they need coaching and mentoring and help. And as I, as I sit here now, you know, I'm about to be 55 next week. I've been doing this for, going on 30 years, like that's important to me. Like that's how, you know, I wake up each day. I'm, I'm genuinely eager to try to figure out how to help the people that work for me be more successful. Some of it's selfish, of course. I mean, if they're successful, I'm, I'm successful, but a lot of it too is just, I, I, I'm just wired that way. I, I, um, you know, I looked back some time ago and, and it, it was interesting. I, I feel, I, I'm pretty sure that I became the captain of virtually every sports team I ever played on, even from the time I was a kid. And it wasn't because I wanted to be the captain. I just felt like, because I was genuinely eager in all of us being successful and figuring out how to make the team better. And mm -hmm. if I saw somebody that might be struggling, I would coach them and, and uh, whether it was my job or not. But I was also always asking the coaches about how I can improve and what they, they think I might be able to do differently. I just never stopped viewing the world that way just because I'm in software sales. I never stopped viewing the world that way. And I think I want to just be surrounded by people that, that view things that way too. So yeah. I just gave you the world's longest answer. It was probably a really short question. It's not because it's really interesting because this is a real common trait that all the 33, 34 CXOs that we're speaking to have that are demonstrating that it's clear that to be a good manager, you can't always be in the limelight, right? You're not always front of stage. You have to have that passion to get people to a certain level and watch people rise above you because as you say, you know, it's important that people continue to grow and grow beyond you because their success breeds your success, right? And I think you've been, you know, fortunate to some degree that you've had, you mentioned Scott Davis who hired you, uh, BMC Blade Logic, Adam yep. Aaron at Okta, Andy Byron at Fuse and Cyber Reason, right? And I think you've, and what we've also noticed about all the different CXOs that we've spoken to is that yes, they're all adopting a very similar playbook, but they're all putting their 
own unique spin um, and ideas into that playbook. And this playbook is evolving. And it'd be really interesting. I think it leads on nicely to actually get a better understanding of your playbook and how each of those three, four, five different people that have been in your life, that have been an influence for you, have now created your playbook and established your playbook. Yeah, and so I'd I'd add another name in that because I think he's been, whether he was conscious of it or not, he has been instrumental in this, Uh, and not just John. And I I still try to talk to John as as often as uh, I can insert myself into his busy world and and get some guidance from him. But uh, Cedric Pesh, um, he and I got to spend a lot more time together at at Fuse than than in the past, especially since Ced has historically been on the other side of the, uh, the Atlantic. I think Cedric is perhaps one of the better examples of somebody that is, if you just look at the people that understand the process and understand how that process needs to be modified, because, you know, all of these companies, the, and if you look at, you know, MongoDB and AppDynamics and all these these successful companies that, that are running this playbook, it's not identical. This is not a, it's, it's not a complete rinse and repeat. There isn't, we don't all have some manual that like John gave us one day, like blessed us like knights and here you go and you just go and, you know, dutifully like do the exact thing. But there, there are basic tenets of this that, that, that work. Um, and they work without regard really for what you're selling or to whom you're selling, but you have to, you have to, kind of bridge the gaps. You have to put the pieces together um, because again, there isn't a one size fits all. And I think Cedric has, has been one of those people that I've always marveled at how he's been able to um, to keep the rigor and the discipline, but know how to modify it. And uh, and I had him very much in mind when I got here at Hyperscience. I, I knew that the sales playbook, quote unquote, would be successful here. I, there, I asked enough questions and, and Charlie having been uh, with us at Fuse, understood the sales motion enough that he could also verify for me as like, yes, for sure, the sales playbook will work. Um, but, um, you know, this is a different buying audience. Uh, their buying processes are a little bit different. Um, we are disrupting something that has been around for many, many, many decades and is very ingrained in these companies. Uh, and so what we do is truly disruptive, not just the figurative, you know, it's Bleeding edge, te- bleeding edge technology, so therefore it's, it's ready to disrupt the market. Like it's disruptive for people to put this into their environment. It, you know, it, it's, it can be very disruptive. And so I came here with a very strong hypothesis about what the sales motion should look like. Um, interestingly, my very first week, uh, true first week at, at Hyperscience, they were having uh, a QBR. So this team that I inherited, some of whom I'd met and some of whom I hadn't, like my very first opportunity to stand in front of them was during a QBR. And I had asked for a little bit of latitude from Peter, our CEO, and Charlie, of course. I said, uh, can I have a few hours? Because I want to build our sales process in real time with the team. And they were like, is that a thing? I go, well, I'm going to have a hypothesis, right? But So I had studied what they told me was their sales process. I came with a hypothesis of how the playbook should look. Mildly modified from what I had been accustomed to. And I basically drew the, the existing uh hyperscience at the time, the existing uh, sales process on a whiteboard, and I said, where, where are we falling down? Like, where is this working? Where is this not working? And I, and I allowed them to kind of help me navigate to a version of that sales process that looked like my hypothesis of our sales playbook. I was about 90% accurate. 
but I think what that did for me is that got I, I there's a big difference, and you probably heard the, it's a, you know something we, we use commonly. There's a big difference between uh, compliance and commitment, right? I could get them to be compliant. I could say, hey, here I am, new guy. I know the sales playbook. It's terrific. You're gonna have to take my word for it. Here's how we're gonna sell, and I could demand compliance. But I allowed them to work with me to see how this sales playbook would help them overcome a lot of what they were stuck uh, or where they had, had been stuck. Um, and so that was much easier for me to get real commitment from them because they saw how this, these pieces came together. Now, as it turns out, in hindsight, um, you fast forward maybe six months or so after I got here, so a little bit after the holidays, we did have to make a few refinements. There's a couple of things that we felt pretty certain were going to work uh, that were a little trickier than we thought. So we, we made a couple of refinements, but uh, but basically my sales playbook, it's very heavy on the, the value framework, not the version that you spend a half a million dollars on to have uh, – John Kaplan, who I love dearly, to come in and you know, train the team for three days. I, I've taken that training enough and been certified on it, so I can deliver it myself. Uh, but it's a it's a much um, it's a tamed down version of that. I took the pieces that I knew would be relevant, and, and some of the rest you know, wouldn't be so much. But the value framework is still very much in there. The sales motion, just this whole motion of slowing down to speed up you know, doing technical validation events, not doing POCs or bake-offs. Like a lot of that stuff I brought with me was was very relevant here and has, has helped us be uh, as successful as we are. We're, I think we're now, we're going to we're gonna end August at almost 400% year-over-year growth from this time last year. So we're, we're doing really well. And then there's Medic. There's everybody's favorite forecast methodology that uh, I, here's why I love Medic. I love Medic because it gives me an opportunity to tell a sales candidate I couldn't possibly hire them. Because if you want to work for me, don't sit in front of me and tell me that your sales process is medic. The sales pro it's not a sales process. It's a forecast methodology. That's why I know the difference between the posers and the people that have actually implemented it is if they call it a sales process, because it is not. It is a forecast methodology, and it's a way for us to talk about deals in a fact-based way and take the emotion out of it. Um, I care if an, if an AE tells me they feel good about a deal. I care because as it turns out, despite what a lot of my friends and my wife would tell you, apparently I am at least mostly human. Uh, but I don't give a shit. Like I care, but I don't give a shit. Like it doesn't have anything to do with the forecast. Like you can feel good about whatever the hell you want, but we need some facts to talk about. And so we, we use a slightly modified version of that. Again, it's a, a slightly cleaned up version. We don't have all the Ds and all the Cs and the P and the like. I'm sure you guys have heard how that whole thing came about. Yeah, MedPIC and yeah, yeah. of course. Well, yeah. well MEDIC, it, it was an acronym that actually was clever when it was M-E-D-I-C, MEDIC, like somebody that deals with medicine or practices medicine. So the idea was MEDIC would tell you the health of your deal. So when that was first crafted back in the PTC days, again, it wasn't there, though some still think I was. Um, that's pretty clever. You're like, hey, you know what? That, that makes a lot of sense. Medic, okay. And then somewhere along the way, some people just decided to throw in extra Ds and a P and some Cs. And now it's like this just goofy sounding thing. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is it works. Um, again, with some refinements. I mean, back in the PTC days, the I essentially stood for initiative. They were looking for budgeted um, projects. And knock on doors. Hey, you, know, you guys can spend money on CAD CAM? Yeah, great. Budgeted. Here we go. I found the eye. No? Okay, they'd move on. I'm obviously, I'm oversimplifying yeah. something complicated. Uh, we sell unbudgeted software. In fact, I don't want people to have been bud have, uh, budgeted for this. That means somebody else got to them long before we did, 
set the price, set the expectations for what that looks like, that's less interesting to me. So when you look at, at medic and you apply it appropriately, you have to be very thoughtful about what each of those things means and are they as applicable for what you're currently doing as they might have been in the past. So we've, we've refined that as well. But my, my sales playbook is not that dramatically different, I don't think, than, uh, than you know, MongoDB and, and AppD and a lot of the more modern versions of what was played logic. Yeah, so yeah, I think it's um, it, it's really interesting because obviously doing what we do, we, we speak to a lot of the kind of sales market and there are lots of different perceptions of what medic is and what medic isn't. It has become so mainstream and I think that it's interesting that there can be some negative perceptions of it being a KPI driven kind of environment but but actually one of the things that you kind of just reflected on is the fact that it's a validation it's a, it's an essential component and it's a backbone if you're going to forecast correctly you have to build this into your process otherwise yeah. it's do that and, and I think it's you know so what, what would you say to those people that have that kind of notion you know um, I, I think that somewhere along the way, it just got bastardized and it isn't what it was intended to be. Again, it's not, it's not a process. There's nothing processorial about, about Medic. Yeah. Um, in fact, the attempts that I've seen made to take Medic and insert it into a sales process. When you're here, you should have the M and one of the Ds. And well, I, don't, I don't think that works. I don't think that's natural. I think that gets clumsy and I think it sets the wrong set of expectations. Here's how I view Medic. I view Medic. It is, it is a list of things that you have to either have or you have to know in order to close a deal, period. And if you take any of those things lightly, if you skip over any of them, they're going to bite you in the ass, period. Like, it, it's extraordinarily rare to close a deal that looks like it could have been. And so, I mean, you can do small deals and you can do shitty deals yeah. maybe. But if you're going to do a deal and you're going to maximize the, the, the revenue that you can get from that particular either transaction or that customer over time, you can't skip through that stuff. You can't. And you call it medic, call it, it doesn't really matter, right? Like the E for, for economic buyer. If you don't get to the person who can ultimately make the decision and go get discretionary funds, when you sell unbudgeted software like we do, so don't use medic. I don't give a shit. You have to get to that person. You don't get to that person. You're never going to get money you're at best you're going to get the table scraps that somebody that ultimately works for that person when they were given here here's you know fifty thousand dollars you can spend well now you're doing fifty thousand dollar deal our average deal size is almost four hundred thousand dollars like that doesn't happen by accident that happens by doing your job with excellence and so i would say to people that don't like medic well then don't use it but you're you're, you're literally cutting off your nose to spite your face if you don't at least understand what's in it and why it's important and then the, the, what I would ask them is, okay, so absent medic, how are you having a fact-based conversation? And I can already tell you, I, I can go sit in their forecast uh, uh, meetings or their, God forbid, their QBRs, and it's going to be a whole lot of what people feel like. I feel like this is good, and I feel like I'm, you, can't, you can't forecast feelings. Yeah. That should be a bumper sticker if it isn't already. But, like, I mean, so, so what else are they going to do? So I guess my, my wise-ass response to somebody that, that poo poos medic would be, well, what the hell's better? What are you, what are you doing that's working? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose um, another thing that we hear about, you know, this playbook, you, you look at all the, the individuals that have had the success. Um, there is a day at DNA. You know, there, there, there are some, some common traits between 
the individuals. Everyone's completely different, but yet there are some common traits that, that run through. What, what, what do you think the common factors are between all the, all the individuals within this, uh, within this series that we're referring to? That's a good question. Look, I think, I think first of all, they're, I think we're all very, very competitive. So uh, there's a reason that most of us don't stay with a, a particular company for, for more than a handful of years. I think it's because we get bored easy and we're very competitive. Um, I find myself disinterested in working for a company where I'm just doing more of what somebody else crafted or, or, or laid the foundation for. It's just not interesting to me. So I think most of these people have a genuine interest in taking something that's either in its, its infancy or maybe it was broken or something, but it gives us an opportunity to build something the way that it should be build, uh, built or, or rebuild something the way that it should be built. So I think, I think that's probably part of everybody's um, maybe just subconscious, but I think being able to build things the way that we think they should be built is probably a common trait. I think we're all just enormously competitive. I think also too, look, I mean, the reality was, you know, you go back and you, you selling software in the eighties and nineties was, was no joke. Like yeah, there's, there's trails of dead bodies of people that thought that they were pretty mentally tough as it turns out they weren't. And, and all you had to do is go through one of John's QBRs back in the day. And you either were going to, you're either going to rub some dirt on it and get back in the game after feeling like you just had your testicles handed to you, or you're still curled up in a ball somewhere, you know, wondering what happened <laughs> to your career. I mean, I mean, that's a thing, right? And so, you know, one of the, one of the tricks for me, and it's one of the things I, I kind of pride myself on is um, I think I have found a way to communicate those things without using fear. I think the people that work for me are afraid of not being successful because they're driven and they don't want to disappoint their, their families and they don't want to disappoint themselves. I think they also don't want to disappoint me, but they don't, they don't fear me in that way. Like fear isn't the motivator. I think fear of failure is a motivator for them. Um, and I think that I do a really good job of making sure the people that work for me know that I genuinely care. Like I give a shit. I'm not doing this because I don't have anything better to do. I'm not doing it because I just want to undress people or, or, or be mean to them. But, but I can't give everybody a great big hug if they need, you know, if they need a kick in the ass either. I mean, that, that doesn't work. And so um, I think the other thing that everybody has in common is we survived a time that was, was pretty tough. You know, and uh, look, I, I, there are still peers of mine that still, you know, probably uh, manage their business that way. Um, and we, we could argue all day long how effective that is or isn't. But I think that's also, look, I was I was in a fraternity in school back uh, in the 80s when hazing was like a real thing that apparently you can't do now, which I think is a shame. Because when you go through something really hard with a group of like-minded people, that's that forms a bond that that life being easy and gentle and everybody giving you a great big hug will never form. The best friends that I still have to this day are guys I met 37 years ago now that were in my, uh, my pledge class when we went through hell week and all that kind of garbage together. Um, and it's for good reason. Right. And so I think there's a little bit of an element to that. I think you go back in time and things were hard and that, uh, that toughness and, you, know, you get together with your peers and joke about how that QBR really sucked and all the people that probably cried and, and probably quit and people who probably deserve to be fired. Like it, 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 it kind of hardens you, like you get steel hardened that way. And um, so I think that's probably also part of it is there's, there's a group of people that take that and take the learning and take the experience and do the right things with it. And there's a group of people that are like, I don't want to deal with that. And they go do something else. 
So I think in terms of you know the world that we live in, we're seeing a bit of a transition with regards to the attitudes, um, you know, with the millennials and generation Z, X, Ys, and how do you think they're going to adapt to this way of working? Do, do you think there is a space for them, or, or do you, as sales leaders, need to adapt to accommodate? That's a really good question. I, look, I, it's going to have to be a little bit of both, right? I, if if there's a, and, and I, we're, we're generalizing, right? I, my my yeah. girls are my girls are uh, soon to be twenty five and twenty seven. They're 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 maybe at the low end of the range of people we're talking about as far as like people that I might be hiring as sellers or, or my peers might be hiring as sellers. Um, and so I, I'm familiar with the generation and uh, look for sure, there's an entire generation of current parents of those kids that, that should be taken out back and beaten because they didn't do <laughs> of a service by, 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 you know, and I also blame the YMCA, that whole everybody gets a trophy thing. It's just, oh, my God, talk about a disastrous concept. But the reality is if there's an entire generation that views things differently, we can fight them on it if we want, and then we're left with, like, two people to hire instead of 20, right? Or we can figure out a way to sort of, I wouldn't say meet them in the middle. But But I have found that even that generation that's getting a, a knock for being a little bit soft, um, there are a lot of, of kids that were raised right, and they're as sick of it as anybody, and they're out there. But again, too, like, this doesn't have to be that hard. Like, you, you have to be tough to do this because the world is a hard place and because the job's a hard job. I don't want anybody working for me because they have to prove how tough they are because somehow I'm going to beat them. Like, I don't, I mean, my, my team knows when I'm not happy. I you can probably tell just by looking at me, I'm, I don't do a pretty good job at all at hiding when I'm not happy, but I don't like, I don't take a heavy handed approach. I just, I know that I need to hire people that are mentally tough and that doesn't mean that they're physically tough. I, I mean, my team is very diverse. Um, and I think every single one of them, are terrific sellers. Uh, some are good at some things and some are good at others. Nobody's good at everything, but they're half my team. You wouldn't look at them and go, Oh, you can tell like they're, you know, exactly. They look like Bill, you know, they're bald headed, bearded, like, you know, Viking warrior type. Like that's, that it's not even a thing. So I think the, I think the approach you, you can demand the same things and you can, but it's all about demonstrating to people why, excellence is excellence and you have to tell them what good looks like you have to show them what good looks like you have to train them to do that uh, and then and then you have to just hire the right people that are going to go do those things that whole toughness thing shouldn't be about dealing with in, internal stuff like i don't want to hire I, people shouldn't come work for me because they're tough and they have to be because somehow I'm going to demand that of them. The world is demanding that of them. I need people that are mentally tough because the world's a hard place right now. But I also want people that recognize the importance of building internal champions. Like if you're going to do this, you have to build internal champions. I couldn't be successful if the people I'm surrounded with and the people that my team are surrounded by don't like working with me and don't respect me or, and, or, or just think that I'm some bully. Like that just doesn't work. I don't even know how that would be successful. So I'm giving you a long answer once again to a short question. I feel like it's not necessarily so much that, you know, a bunch of tough people have to like find ways to be yeah. soft because that generation soft. I don't think that's it at all. I think they're, they just approach things a little bit differently. Their perspectives different. Yeah. I think uh, plenty of them have the mental and internal toughness to, to deal with what the world's throwing at them. My job should be to make the stuff I can control as easy for them as possible. It shouldn't be to make life hard. Like why would I yeah. want to make things more difficult for my sellers? The world, 
it's lost its goddamn mind right now. It's probably never been tougher, right? So I'm going to try to make life easy for them uh, in a way that will help them be successful. So. Yeah, and I think that's probably the success of the playbook, which is, you know, 30 years old, really, but it still recruits on attributes and sales enablement complements that perfectly. Yep. Because I think if you if, if you hire on experience a lot of the time, that's when you can really get left behind. Rolodex, you know, we've, every person we've interviewed as part of this show so far have said, I'm not interested in your Rolodex. And I think that's where we've got to with, with what you've just said just now. Mm. And it's the characteristics, right? You're hiring people that take it upon themselves. They're not doing it to prove to somebody else. They're doing it because they're naturally competitive people and they're competitive because they want for themselves to be better. They want themselves yeah. to be the best. So you, you're really generating a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in that you know, these people are looking after themselves and wanting the best for themselves. Yeah, and look, and, and there's plenty of them out there. There's this generation, you know, right now, Certainly here in the States, you turn on the news, you're seeing the worst version of the generation doing the worst things that they could possibly be doing. But um, I just don't think it's reflective across the board. I've got, I mean, I've got some people on my team right now that are, that at their age right now for doing what they're doing, like selling software to really large enterprises in a tough environment, they're exceptional. They're better at it than I ever was at that age. That's super encouraging to me. yeah, I, I, I have, I have, I have high hopes for this generation. I think they, they get a, a little. Well, again, there are lots of people my age that deserve a punch in the throat for how they raise their kids, but that's different. So, what would your advice be now, if you, if you were to kind of speak to aspiring sales individuals looking to find their way in this big bad world? What would your kind of world pearls of wisdom be? Um, I feel. A couple of things, uh, and maybe it's just my bias because it's also the answer to the question about what I think has prim- primarily led to my success. So I just have to assume that I'm, I'm not uh, like the lone example of where these things would work. I think a couple of things. One is um, never lose sight of what the buyer is thinking and going through. All the sales training that we ever take, all the sales method, everything is super focused on what we can do as sellers and it becomes very selfish by its sheer nature. It it doesn't really allow us to pause and think, okay, if I do this, if I say this, if I demand this, what's the reaction likely to be? Because where are they in their thinking, right? The example that I use all the time, and again, it was one of the things that, that sort of made me scratch my head a little bit with some of the sales leadership at Octa when I was leaving, at, at the tail end of a sales endeavor, if you've gotten somebody to a place where they've decided to make uh, or decided to to do business with you, now they're the buyer is 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 right in the middle of risk mitigation mode. They're thinking, well, how can I go ahead and ensure that this decision isn't going to be one I'm going to regret? And so what they need is they need a great big hug. They need you to get your implementation team to remind them that we've done this a thousand times, like we've got you, this is gonna be good. They need to be comforted because they're thinking this might be risky. If you talk to them about, hey, listen, I need this deal at the end of the month and I can give you a discount, all it does is take that anxiety and and quadruple it. They're like, holy shit, now I'm I'm really nervous because now they're starting to behave like they're, they're desperate, like I, I had really enjoyed the, the relationship to this point, but now they're acting desperate. And now it's about, I mean, price has nothing to do with it. And so, so I think lesson number one is don't ever lose sight of where the, the prospect is likely in their buying journey. 
And if it's not aligned to what you're doing and saying, you're, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. So don't be selfish and just be thinking about our sales process. Now, the not so subtle nuance is the reciprocal of that's disastrous. If you just say, hey, how do you want to buy this and follow them along and do whatever they want, it's going to look something like this. Tell me what you do differently. Give me a demo. Give me price. Piss off. I'll figure it out, right? And, and that's not much of a sales process either. So, <laughs> so th those things have to, to balance. I think the other thing is um, I think a lot of especially first-time sales leaders are under the mistaken impression that they have to be the best seller, which they don't. And I don't think they do a very good job at understanding that there's two audiences that we all sell to. There's the people who we ultimately hope will give us their money, the obvious uh, audience for, for our selling. Uh, but they forget that we have internal sellers. Like you have to build champions. Like the, every single company that I've worked for that I can think of, we have shared resources. No AE has their own SE and their own SDR. Like they're shared resources. So if you're if you're the jackass in the crowd, they're not going to spend their time with you. They're going to go to to your peer who isn't mistreating them. And so I think uh, all too often we all just forget that we've got to build internal champions and continue to nurture those champions just like we talk about external champions. I think a lot of us don't do a very good job at, at, uh, at understanding how important that is and making sure those things are in, in place as well. Probably it. Either that or I would just say, don't do it. It's too hard. No. <laughs> uh, that might be my advice. What the hell do you want to sell software for? What's wrong with you? So we're always keen to, to understand the man behind the, you know, the CRO, uh -oh. CXO. <laughs> we're not talking about the big Viking here, but no, we're, yeah. we're talking about, you know, the, the pressures that, you know, you guys are under and, you know, the demand of time, you know, how do you keep yourself sane and how do you have family life, right? It's hard. It's actually harder now, uh, trapped at home like during during the pandemic i think it's actually harder you would think it would be easier because if you're trapped at home it you know kind of forces more family time i think you just start to get a little stir crazy and 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 that that's tough um look it's a hard thing i think look one of the the, the things that makes working at hyperscience as rewarding as it has been is this company is super focused on that whole notion of work-life balance and mm. uh making sure people are extraordinarily well taken care of our, our ceo's philosophy and he says it all the time is if the company takes care of the employees the employees will take care of the company we shouldn't have to be that demanding of them they're going to want to do it because they like working here they like the people they work with they feel like they're well taken care of uh, those things are hard to actually make happen in practice i think hyperscience has just done an extraordinary job it's funny again having done this for three decades and you know i've i've i've, I've hired sellers now for 20 years or whatever it ends up being you know on and off a bit i've never in my lifetime ever talked about like benefits <laughs> like table stakes it's like we have healthcare and we have like, you know, like whatever the benefits are always table stakes. I actually talk about them here. Like this company has like childcare stipends. Like you can get like $3,000 a month for your kids to put them through private school or for, or for those kinds of things. Um, like the company does extraordinary things to help you feel like when, when your work life is demanding, that we're intentionally giving you that balance. We're making things better for you at home. We're, you know, we're very eager to ensure that you're taking your vacation and you're enjoying it. And um, and those things are easy to say. Like I, I, I don't, I, I doubt there are very many people that start companies and say, hey, we're going to treat our people like shit. Like our motto is going to be like, let's not care about the people. Um, but it's, I think it's hard to do in practice. And so it might sound like a cop out to your question, but I think part of the answer is. Like go work someplace where they where that's okay. Mm. 
because I've worked at places before where it's not so, it wasn't so okay. Like they tell you, you can take your vacation, sure, but you know, but then there was the whole, so, well, dude, you're in sales. If you're on vacation, who's selling? Like, well, you know, what's wrong with you? But I, I, I just, I think a lot of it has to do with where you work. Yeah. I, I know I just, that was just a shameless plug for, you know, my company and we're growing like crazy and <laughs> I am hiring. So I just, I just, I just did that. I'm guilty, but it is, it, it's actually, I believe it's a truthful answer. I really do. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is you just have to work for a company that understands yeah. that that's important. I would rather have, I would rather have somebody take 30 days of vacation time and be motivated and energized and go kick ass than somebody that refuses to take vacation because they think that somehow that's not a good idea and is just, you know, like this stressed out blob of goo that I have to push around and try to get them to do stuff. So yeah. But do you find yourself going? Yeah. Do you find yourself going regularly to the gym, kind of like detaching yourself and having a sport? Because obviously, you mentioned you participated in loads of sports at a young age. Yeah, I was playing. I was playing uh, hockey up until I took this job because I was pre-pandemic flying to New York every week, and that doesn't really enable you to be part of a. Uh, a men's hockey league that plays in the middle of the week. I do work out because as I've come to learn, I am really not a pleasant human being if that doesn't happen. That that there there are there are healthy ways for the stress and the tension to come out and there are some very unhealthy ways. So uh, I do try to, to work out as much as I I still work out like a knucklehead. I you know I don't work out like a man my age at all. I, I shouldn't do the things I do in the gym. I, I do it because it just makes me feel better. I have a hobby that, that keeps me sane. I, I restore vintage motorcycles and, and ride them. I do more riding than my wife would like to see, but uh, that's that's very that's a bit of a soul cleansing sort of thing for me. I am a, the the reason why why my wife is more uh, appreciative of this than she might otherwise be is because I truly am a better human being when I get back from riding a motorcycle all day than before I left. So uh, so that that does help. That has a lot to do with it. So. Yeah. So I suppose the, the the last question we normally always ask on this uh, part of this series is, does the hunter make the unicorn? And really get to understand your uh, your opinion on that. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to just I'm going to make some assumptions that my definition of those two words, hunter and unicorn, are at least mostly aligned with what you guys are talking about. Like, here's my pers my perspective. If if we're talking about unicorns, companies that you know, that experience hyper growth and get to that $1 billion valuation. My take is that none of them were birthed that way, right? They, they, they were all a whole lot of nothing other than some optimism and, and some idea of a product that may or may not sell at some point. I just can't imagine how you get there without, without hunters, right? I mean, by the sheer definition, you have to go out there, you have to go find you have to find a market, you have to find an audience, you have to find people that are willing to take a chance on you, especially in the early days. You know, we, we think about that a lot now too. Ours is very much a land and expand model. The companies that find value in what we do are some of the largest companies in the world and, and most of them don't buy software in, in one you know, great big purchase. So, so it's all pure hunting until we've actually landed a deal. And now there's an element of some farming for, for the expansion piece but what's interesting about that is just having success in one line of business or one area in these large companies does not by sheer nature mean like just make sure it goes well and it suddenly organically grows. Like we're, we're finding that the selling on the expansion is, is perhaps just as hard as landing that first deal. So yeah, look, I, I, I can't imagine you can become a unicorn with anything other than a hunter mentality across your entire team. Whether you get to a place where you have account management and, and some farming types of activities, 
I don't even know that that changes the the, the focus. <laughs> so I, I think it's fairly, uh, to me at least, it's fairly obvious that's how you get there. And I would imagine most of these companies have pretty aggressive sales goals, and um, and they they just have people that know how to go out there and find business. Yeah. So so I think kind of just reflecting on you know this episode, what we what we've learned today. When we look at the 33 CXOs, the remarkable success that this group of individuals have gone on to achieve, we're trying to discover what are the common factors, what are the common denominators, what are the links between why this group have gone on to achieve the things that they've gone on to achieve. And I think what we've heard today is a couple of things which I think really resonate with that, with that kind of success. I think the first part is the raw materials. You know, when you look at yourself, Bill, naturally very competitive, you know, a, a really exceptional base level of kind of intelligence. But I think that could have been restrictive had you not had the thirst to want to learn, want to develop, want to evolve yourself, want to put yourself in uncomfortable scenarios where you weren't the best person in the room, but you were surrounded by, by people that were always better than you. And you were a sponge to continue to learn and develop. So I think raw materials can be just as much a hindrance as they can be an opportunity. And I think you really epitomize the DNA. And actually, when you look at the 33 CXOs, they have that. But you also all recruit that within your teams. And I think the second element, which I think is absolutely fundamental to reflect on, is the fact that whilst there are rules to the game in terms of the playbook, there is enough room for you guys to be able to put your own spin. And I think that's what makes this so timeless. And so anyone that's watching this that wants to understand why should I be part of this journey? Why should I get behind you guys? Why should I join an organization like the one that, you know, Bill is going out there really pushing is because it's an opportunity for you to really embrace something that irrelevant of what your background is, irrelevant of what your experience is, there is something for you there. You take the structure, you make it your own, and the, and, and, and the sky is, is the limit. So, Bill, I just wanted to kind of end on that point. I want to thank you for participating with us today. You've been an absolutely fantastic guest. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. My pleasure. appreciate you guys giving me a chance to uh, share my perspective on a few things. So that's good Brilliant. stuff. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. I really enjoyed the it. conversation. Thank you guys. Thanks very much.